Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Le Show, Ring of Fire, The Daily Show, and Countdown. Lou Dobbs run out of scary things to say about immigrants? Probably not. Actually, definitely not. But two recent segments on climate change suggest that he can do deceptive reporting about more than one thing. On December 18th, Dobbs presented a segment about how unusual wintry weather in the West was casting doubt on global warming. Or, as Dobbs put it, so what are those folks talking about? Global warming. His guests were CNN meteorologist Chad Myers and Jay Lair of the Heartland Institute, a conservative think tank that has been funded by ExxonMobil. Lair unsurprisingly argued against the existence of warming, but CNN's in-house guest was only slightly better, bemoaning the arrogance of thinking that climate could be impacted by mere human activity. Dobbs unfortunately returned to this subject, announcing on his January 5th show, quote, up next, new indications that the hype over global warming may be based on inexact science and inexact assessment of facts, close quote. Dobbs warned viewers to relax and listen to the facts in the report, but there wasn't much to go on. Last year was among the warmest ever, but cooler than the previous few. One study suggests ice levels are higher than they've been in some time, though it's thin ice that melts easily. Nonetheless, CNN sought out comments from two sources, a climatologist who doesn't trust the overwhelming scientific consensus, and someone from the pro-corporate Cato Institute who argued against government doing much about climate change at all. Dobbs closed the report by commenting that people who believe global warming is happening treat it as almost a religion before floating the idea that sunspots could be the real culprit here, a theory most climate scientists have rejected. After offering up that discredited hypothesis, Dobbs ironically lamented the, quote, crowding out of facts and objective assessment of those facts, close quote. Funny, that's exactly what he's doing. contribution to sea level rise from a collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet has been greatly overestimated. According to a new study published in the journal Science, scientists estimate global sea level would rise 3.3 meters, not 5 or 6, as previously thought. Put those water wings away, ladies and gentlemen. The Atlantic and Pacific seaboards of the U.S., even in the case of a partial collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, would experience the largest increases threatening cities such as New York, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. Long thought of as the sleeping giant with respect to sea level rise, Antarctica holds about nine times the volume of ice of Greenland. The western, its western ice sheet is of particular interest to scientists due to its unusual below sea level topography, which is believed to make it inherently stable. That's intelligent design. But the area's potential contribution to sea level has been greatly overestimated according to these new calculations. Some Michigan mammal species are rapidly expanding their ranges northward. Hello, Canada. Apparently in response to climate change, according to a new study in the process, these historically southern species are replacing their northern counterparts. A new civil war of mammals, ladies and gentlemen. Sounds like it looms, but I don't know. That may be just me. Anyway, back to the study. The finding by researchers at the University of Michigan, Michigan State University, and Ohio's Miami University. Boy, Miami is moving north. Forget about the mammals. When you read about changes in flora and fauna related to climate warming, 
Most of what you read is either predictive, they're talking about changes that are going to happen in the future, or it's restricted to single species living in extreme or remote environments like polar bears in the Arctic, says lead, lead author Philip Myers. But this study documents things that are happening right now here at home. We're talking about the commonest mammals in Michigan, mammals that have considerable ecological impact. They disperse seeds, they eat seeds, they eat the insects that kill trees, they disperse the fungus that grows in tree roots that is necessary for trees to grow, and they're the prey base... I know the feeling. For a huge number of carnivorous birds, mammals, and snakes, but we don't know enough about their natural natural history to know whether replacing a northern species with a southern equivalent is going to pass unnoticed or is going to be catastrophic. It could work either way. What we can say, this is again the author of the study, is that the potential is there for serious changes to happen, and it would be really smart of us to figure it out, but that will require a lot of detailed, focused ecological research. I think the time to start holding your breath begins now. Then we move to the Great Northwest. Climate change appears to be cutting the winter snowpack in Washington's Cascade Range by at least 20%, according to a researcher at the University of Washington. Rising temperatures means more of the snow falls with a high water content. What else does snow contain? I know, chicken cutlets. And melts and washes away long before it's needed by users in spring and summer months, the research found. All things equal, if you make it one degree Celsius warmer, then 20% of the snowpack goes away for the central Puget Sound Basin, the area we looked in, says Joseph Casola, a doctoral student in atmospheric sciences at the University of Washington. Lead pollution in the air. Here's another one of those kooky, you know, we thought it was bad. Now it's, now it's not so bad. Maybe it's even good because it's not bad. Things. Lead pollution in the air stimulates the formation of ice particles in clouds. A team of scientists from the USA, Germany, and Switzerland has found that particles containing lead are excellent seeds for the formation of ice crystals in clouds. This not only has a bearing on the formation of rain and other forms of precipitation, but may also have an influence on the global climate. This is because the heat given off from the Earth's surface is more efficiently radiated into space by ice clouds with lead-containing particles than has been hitherto realized. Get that lead back in the gas, quick. In comparison to clouds with a low lead content, clouds with a high lead content thus actually help cool the Earth. Over the last 20 years, there has been, as you know, a continuing decrease in the rate of man-caused lead emissions. This may mean that the greenhouse effect is now even more pronounced because lead-containing clouds that once previously helped limit it are reduced. And we try to be so good. Now, to uh, the argument that climate change, whatever it is, is not caused by man, but by something happening on the sun, a favorite argument of Senator James Imhoff, the lead climate change denier in the Senate. He's from Oklahoma. Climate never changes. This troubling hypothesis about the how the sun may impact global warming is, according to Science Daily, finally laid to rest. Carnegie Mellon University's Peter Adams, along with Jeff Pierce from Dalhousie University in Halifax, have developed a model to test the controversial hypothesis that says changes in the sun are causing global warming. The hypothesis they tested was that increased solar activity reduces cloudiness by changing cosmic rays. So when clouds decrease, more sunlight is let in, causing the Earth to warm. Some climate change skeptics have tried to use this hypothesis to suggest that greenhouse gases are not the culprit. In research published in Geophysical Research Letters, damn it, the kid threw my copy in the lawn sprinkler, and highlighted in the May 1st edition of Science, Adams and Pierce report the first atmospheric simulations of changes in atmospheric ions and particle formulation formation resulting from variations in the sun and cosmic rays. They find that changes in the concentration of particles that affect clouds are 100 times too small to affect the climate. That's the part I understood. Climate change isn't only bad for the earth, it may be bad for your health, especially if you have allergies or asthma, says USA Today. Global warming is making pollen seasons last longer, creating more ozone in the air, and even expanding the areas where insects flourish, putting more people with bee allergies at greater risk, according to experts. Climate change will cause impacts in every area. Wet areas will get wetter, 
and drier climates are getting drier, says Jeffrey Domain, director of the Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Center of Alaska. These changes will mean more people with allergies and asthma will suffer in wet areas. Mold allergies will spike. While in drier areas, pollens and other airborne irritants will become more of a problem, he says. Problems caused by climate change are already evident, especially in Alaska. He says there's been a significant shift in the ecosystem because of the rises in winter temperatures. On the average, Alaska's temp has risen 5, sorry, 6.4 degrees in winter and 3.4 degrees overall. And the earlier the snow melts, the earlier the pollen cycle begins. The plant and tree life is also changing. It's estimated that 90% of the Alaskan tundra will be forested by 2100, and the types of trees are most common. They're changing, too. The warmer temperatures are also attracting insects. In the past, Alaska hasn't had too many stinging insects. But, says the researcher, northern Alaska has recently seen a 620% increase 620% increase in the number of people seeking care for bee stings. But, you know, that's a better look for the lips than collagen. A new Lancet, Lancet is the British medical journal, report on health and social effects of climate change says that climate change is the biggest global health threat of the 21st century. They engaged in a year-long research project along with University College of London on the health and social effects of climate change. The report has just been released. First, there's a massive gap in information, they say, an astonishing lack of knowledge about how we should respond to the negative health effects of climate change. Second, since the effects will hit the poor hardest, we, have an Im- we humans, have an immense task before us to address the inadequacies of health systems to protect people in most at-risk countries. There's a technology challenge. Technologies do have the potential to help us adapt to changes in climate, but these technologies have to be developed out of greater research investments into climate change science. The fourth challenge, they say, is political, creating conditions for low-carbon living. And finally, there's the question of how we adapt our institutions to make climate change the priority it needs to be. I don't know what they're doing up the rope there, ladies and gentlemen, but I have an idea. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio here with Bobby Kennedy. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, the GOP's latest talking point is that combating global warming is going to do more harm to our economy than all those Wall Street Ponzi schemes we've been seeing lately. Unfortunately for the GOP, the facts show just the opposite. Switching to a green economy is not only going to help the environment, but it's going to create thousands of jobs for American workers. Joining me now is author and journalist Glenn Hurwitz, who's going to keep tabs on the GOP's anti-environmental activities like he's been doing for years. You know, Glenn, among the things I learned in journalism school back at University of Florida way back when, it is that most of the time journalists fail not because they're stupid, but because they're lazy. And, you know, if you take a look at what journalists have done with this industry spin on climate change that you've written about, and you've, you've really nailed this topic, that's exactly what's happening. They've just gotten lazy. They, they, they won't do fact checks. They, they, they refuse to look to see what's behind this thing that they're being pitched by the industry. Yeah, and, you know, they have, are hearing a conservative PR campaign from the Chamber of Commerce and uh, polluters saying that climate ch- acting on, on climate change and achieving a clean energy future is going to somehow uh, drag down the economy. 
where if you talk to scientists, if you talk to economists, the exact opposite is true. Uh, you know, not only will we see at least $2,000 per family per year in costs from the impacts of climate change, things like sea level rise causing basements to flood or, you know, more greater air conditioning bills as the temperature goes up, but um, there's also a huge job creation opportunity in, you know, clean energy, wind, solar power. Uh, that far exceeds anything that, you know, our continued reliance on. Well, I, I, Glenn, one part of it is, and I, I think you, follow, you, you handle this in, in what you write, is, is that they lost the first part of the argument. The first part, the right. in, industry lost the argument that global uh, climate change is not taking place. And so then they go to the second argument, and then the, it is that it's not man-made. And now they go to the third part of the argument, well, if it is man-made, we can't do anything about it because it's too expensive, so we have to go on spewing garbage and trash into the environment and killing uh, the future for our great-grandchildren because it's too expensive. That's basically what the framers, the Madison Avenue framers have done here, isn't it? It is. And, you know, it's like, how long do you want your children and grandchildren to be addicted to coal and oil and pollution, especially when all these clean energy sources are available? And the problem has been a lot of journalists, including some of the, you know, top mainstream outlets uh, in, in the alleged liberal media, they are not that interested in either finding out what's true or they just are still credulous about what the the polluters say, and um, you know, you, even after you have meetings with a lot of these guys, they are so used to, I think, receiving information from you know a, a pretty uh, well-oiled um, machine on the right and from corporate America that it's it's hard to break through. Well, um, let's give some examples. I mean, I, I, you look at this well-oiled machine that, for example, they, they put together this uh, attack group. I mean, back in the 90s, their attack group was, uh, you know, the Global Climate Coalition. Uh, it was the main industry group. They spent all of their time in the 90s creating doubt with journalists, politicians, uh, creating their own abstract reality of what's really happening. And uh, you go back and look at what those scientists, though I call them biostitutes, they're basically right. will prostitute themselves to anything for the right amount of money. These scientific biostitutes, if you go back and look at their notes, they knew, they absolutely were sure that global change was taking place and it was bad for mankind. It was caused by CO2, and they knew all that. But that didn't stop them from pitching just the opposite to the journalist and politicians and, uh, and the American public, did it? It didn't. And now uh, they're pitching a new line uh, because journalists no longer trust them to say that global warming isn't happening or that it isn't caused by man. And their new line is that it's going to cost a lot of money to address it. But uh, it's coming from the same people, and they're just peddling a new lie. But they're still getting too much credibility with the media. Yeah, you're actually seeing good journal. I mean, New York Times repeating this latest myth by industry uh, that it's okay to continue spewing pollution into the air because it, we can't do anything. Our hands are tied because if we do, we'll burn down the economy. G give us, give us the, the the more accurate picture, Glenn. What what really will happen if we do what we should do here? Well, the number one thing that will happen is we'll avoid a lot of damage, and not just environmental damage, but a lot of economic damage too. Um, you know, their rising sea levels are going to ruin a lot of people's houses. Uh, you're going to see declining agricultural production. You, you saw a study come out this week that showed every year uh, corn growers will lose a billion dollars uh, because of the impacts of global warming reducing yield. You'll see forests disappear um, as, and turn to the prairie or desert even. And so that's, you know, number one thing. The number two thing that's going to happen is there's going to be massive uh, economic opportunity and new jobs in the clean energy sector. Greenpeace just came out with a report showing 7 million new jobs by 2030 uh, by shifting gradually to clean energy, still keeping all the coal fired power plants, nuclear power plants online until you know they, they go out of commission. Uh, but just even that bringing on that new capacity, that new solar and wind, uh, investing in renovating houses to be more energy efficient, uh, you know, that's going to employ a whole range of people, from people in the manufacturing sector making those wind turbines to people installing them to scientists and engineers inventing new ways to, to use energy.
Administrator, please welcome to the program Lisa P. Jackson. How are you? I am fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, you are the head of the EPA. The Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, when you first walked in to the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, uh, the Bush administration had been there for eight years. Had it been used? When, when, <laughs> when was there uh, a dead possum in your keyboard? Uh, tell me about, was there, were there fires set? Were there uh, zombie vampires? There what, was. What, was, what was the building like? There was actually a lot of happy people. A lot of employees at the EPA were waiting to have their work back in front of the American people. So this is, you, you walked in the door and, and when they first came in, what would they, what would they say to you? Uh, is global warming real? Were they asking you? What, what were some of the no, questions? Actually, they were holding up the documents they had prepared, uh, figuratively, saying, uh, we did a lot of work and we're ready to brief you on it. I've been briefed on almost everything. What's the spread of political appointees to uh, sort of career workers in the Environmental Protection Agency. How, how much of them are, are, are scientists? How much of them are, are political uh, appointees? We have uh, about 17,000 uh, people, 17,500, and we have 10 political appointees that, uh, I'm sorry, 13 that have to be confirmed by the Senate, another 10 in offices across the country. We're pretty 23 people, and then the other 17,000. Couldn't they have overthrown? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it seems like just such a, a, a perfect opportunity for, I guess, what I would call a mutiny. Yeah. Well, you, you have to have someone to mutiny, too, and President Obama listens, but I'm Are sure. there other, uh, you know, I was reading recently that there may still be some appointees within uh, the agency or the agencies, I guess the, the SBA, the Small Business uh, Administration, still has appointees that have been uh, putting out. I, I read that there are some still out there who are a little skeptical about our commitment to environmental protection and who are every once in a while lobbing a few grenades our way. I believe uh, that global warming is real, but I am one of those people that feel like, you know, the earth doesn't come with a thermostat. Are we getting ourselves in for trouble trying to regulate the uh, differences between a little bit of carbon dioxide here, a little bit, let's turn up the oxygen, hold on a second, let me throw a little <laughs> nitrogen in there. That's the right temperature. Because I live in New York City, I've lived here for 25 years, my apartment hasn't been comfortable yet. <laughs> how do you, how can you possibly regulate gases in a fashion that will create the climate? Or, or aren't we trying to engineer something we don't, can't control? Your apartment aside, uh, I, I do think that we have an opportunity. You, you know, you have to realize we're not talking about fine-tuning. We're talking about some pretty massive changes on a global scale. Uh, the work that's been done, and almost to a person, scientists actually do agree with you that man-made uh, activity is causing our climate to change, shows that these are large trends over many years. So, and, and they are comfortable with the idea that we can control it. What, what if some of the changes are positive? Uh, I've been to New Hampshire in the winter. It, it's not comfortable. <laughs> you know, it, it's true. When the climate changes, not everyone's going to end up on the negative side of that equation. Right. I think it's important to remember, though, that some of the people who will are some of the uh, places in our world that can least afford it, and that almost everyone's Things going to be level. affected. Right. Yes, yeah, sea level will change. We'll see more droughts. We'll see more floods. And that will impact our very security. The global security is actually at stake. But are you going to, the, the, the big trade-off is uh, they don't want to slow down the economy. The idea that you'll regulate carbon. Now, I understand in, in, in 1990, uh, Clean Air Act, and they regulated sulfur dioxide because right. of acid rain, and it worked very nicely. It did. But sulfur dioxide is not carbon dioxide. That's right. How do you decide who gets regulated and who, and who doesn't? Because I'm going to be frank with you, and I, and I admit this on television, I emit carbon dioxide. <laughs> and I've been doing it now without retribution for quite some time. Will I be under your cap and trade? Will I be regulated? You could potentially be. I, I think you brought up a couple of issues there. First, you're allowed to breathe. We're, we're glad you're breathing. Keep on doing that. Um, yes, and, we can. And <laughs> 
And the EPA is not looking to reach down into individual lives and change individual lifestyles, nor are we looking to regulate cows. That's a, a favorite one, too. What we are saying is that on a large scale, our use of fossil fuels in this country emit lots and lots of carbon dioxide and some other gases that are changing our climate. And the president has called for a market-based transition over to a lower carbon future. Cap and trade. Cap or we're not using that anymore. Is that, are you, you, you focus tested cap and trade? Because I got a couple of other things People we can like call People like market-based better, but we'll say cap and trade. How about this? Like Set it and forget it. How about Set that? <laughs> I like How that. about, I got one for you. Government mandated emission limits offset by market-based credit exchange opportunities. All right. Or the uh, acronym Gamalgum fucking. <laughs> but you feel like you can do that without hurting small business? Because that is, these, uh, these companies are hurting, and, and any more onerous uh, regulation on some of that could be could be an issue. Yes? I do think we need to be sensitive to it. I do think that Congress is looking at that issue. I do think there are ways within a market-based system to do that. We need legislation to do it the best. Look at you talking to me like I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Don't want to talk about it. Right now, I'm talking with author Glenn Hurwitz about the latest right-wing talking points about how fighting global warming is actually going to hurt the economy in spite of the fact that all the evidence shows just the opposite. Uh, what do the credible scientists, Glenn, the people that you can trust, what do they say about where we need to be in our reduction of carbon dioxide emissions by, say, uh, uh, 2050? Well, by 2050, we need to be at least 80 percent uh, below where we were in 1990. Um, mm. So that's, you know, pretty huge. It's also very easy to achieve. But what the scientists are, keep saying every year, they come out and say, oh, last year what we told you uh, wasn't actually true. You need to act even faster than we had been saying. Yeah, we've been saying that the last five years, haven't we? Yeah. And it's so now they're saying what's even more important than the 2050 target, you know, which is uh, – beyond the lifetimes of most of the politicians who are in office now, is actually what happens in 2020. And we need to make sure we get to at least 25% reductions uh, below 1990 by then. That's a pretty consistent projection, isn't it? I mean, that, that is not something that's all over the board. You consistently hear that 20 to 25% reduction by uh, 2020. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, they actually say that if you do that, then you have an even chance of avoiding the worst impacts. Right. Uh, but... The good news is it may sound like a lot, but, you know, you look at some states like Colorado, and they've already implemented policies that are getting us there. They've, uh, you know, had a, a 10% clean energy standard saying 10% of all the energy that need, that's produced in Colorado needs to come from wind or solar. It was so successful that the utility, who had fought it tooth and nail and spent tens of millions of dollars to fight it in the first place, they then supported raising that target to 20 percent. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's always how it is. I mean, it, it's just it's just it is this nepotism that exists within the industry. I mean, you bring one MBA that's been there for 20 years, brings up his nutty friend that's just graduated from Harvard MBA, and that nutty friend brings up his nutty friend from uh, Yale. Who, and it, it's this, it is this mind meld where they all think alike. And when you give them a different idea, it's like, oh my God, the sky's falling. We, we can't do anything about it. But story after story where they say, okay, we did it now, and we're happy we did. Costa Rica is a good example. I don't know if you followed that story down there. Uh, you know, they're 80 percent fossil free, uh, fossil fuel free. I mean, with things like exactly what you're talking about, solar and wind and hydro and geothermal. 
So, so I mean, we know we can get there, but it, it's the, if journalists, I mean, if the damn journalist can't even get it. I mean, look, l- let's go back. You talk about in some of the stuff you write about how many times have we seen journalists not get it? I mean, the to- how about this? How about industry selling us that tobacco is safe? It won't right. cause cancer. They did that for decades and journalists bought into it. How about the industry selling us that well, there's no need for seatbelt? You know, you, you know, there's seatbelts don't make us safer. And, you know, we know that was lie. And then, and then the denial that climate change was taking place. And then the denial that it was man's, that it was man-made. So what, what does it, what's the wake-up call for somebody that calls themselves a journalist that says, well, you know, I gotta, I can't just take this, this corporate fact sheet and, and report it. Well, one thing that I definitely see happening, and it, it does creep into better journalist stories, is they start to see people actually being employed in clean energy, in conservation. So, you know, right now, the wind industry actually employs more people than the entire coal mining industry that gets a lot of publicity and a lot is, is you know, somewhat likely to get financial support for so-called tooth fairy, you know, tooth fairy technology, clean mm-hmm. coal technology. But the fact is they're a lesser engine of employment, and it's a decreasing engine of employment than these clean energy sources. You add in solar, you add in geothermal, you add in efficiency, and it's off the charts. And you, know, you talk to people, actually, who had been employed in manufacturing. Those jobs are disappearing in many cases. They had been employed in the power sector. The place where they're getting hired is actually in, in the clean energy economy. And in a lot of places, in, in Michigan is a good example. You know, they just in, in the Detroit area, they just put in uh, a wind turbine factory, and 95% of the applicants for the jobs there had experience in automotive manufacturing. And so, how how optimistic are you that Obama can accomplish what he wants to? Uh, you know, we can hope for eight years, but can he at least get us started in four years to where the American public finally gets it and understands that? This is not just even an option. This is what we have to do to to save our grandchildren. He totally can, and he has the legal power to do it, and he has the political power to make sure Congress acts. Uh, Congress has been... Some you know has been debating it and and bargaining, but Obama has something in his back pocket, which is the authority to set up a really robust climate change by executive uh, order by executive order mm-hmm. um, through the EPA to say we're going to regulate carbon dioxide. Right. If he says we're going to do it 40 percent below 1990 levels by 2020, that's the what scientists say will give you a, a little bit of a safety margin. That'll totally freak out the polluters, and that will give them a really strong incentive to go through Congress and maybe do something so, a little weaker, so, more efficient. But he could do that, say he's going to do that tomorrow. That would totally change the political dynamic in the country. It's a little bit of hardball. But well, I think don't, don't you think? Yeah, don't you think he has to do that with the the? You know, we we love to think that the Democrats that came there are Democrats that that are progressives, but you're seeing more and more. I mean, just this week you saw Democrats that are now saying, "Gee, we don't know if we want to support you going after corporate tax havens and offshore islands where we lose a hundred billion dollars a year." I mean, that's the mentality that he's being faced with. And and your point is the more he can do by way of executive order where he says, hell with you guys, you know, I don't really need you. It's kind of the FDR approach. I'm going to do it by executive order and, you know, hell with Congress. He almost has to do that on some of these issues, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, you look at, you know, right now they are even having difficulty getting this energy bill through just the, the small committee, uh, the, the sm- subcommittee uh, mm-hmm. within the Greater Energy and Commerce Committee. Then it has to go through there. Then it got, has to go through the House. And then you have to negotiate with the Senate where you have people like you know Ben Nelson and others yeah, who really uh, aren't are, Democrats. Are, are Democrats <laughs> and or Arlen Specter. Yeah. Um, who you know are, are definitely have, have doubts and uh, are listening to some of the polluters who've caused the problem. So I, I think he could totally change that dynamic and get all the people who are resisting it on board with saying, okay, we have to come up with a solution. Yeah. Let's sit down you, at the table you, and do you it. You wrote a great book uh, called Fear and Courage in the Democratic Party, I remember. And it, that was a call to those people that, that call themselves Democrats. And, and, and what, what you said to them is now is the time to show courage. And do you think we're seeing it uh, to, to the level that you, that you would hope? It's slowly creeping up, but not, certainly not as much as I hope. And, you know, the amazing thing is right when I wrote the book, you know, you still had Republicans in, in the House and Senate, and there right, wasn't right. this massive sense of Republican failure in the way that there is now. So, you know, almost anywhere in the country, a Democrat has large popular support. There's huge support for President Obama's agenda. When you ask people polling questions, 
you know, do you support, uh, for instance, climate change legislation or do you support health care legislation? The support goes up a lot when you say, do you support President Obama's health care legislation or do you support President Obama's <laughs> climate change legislation? It is interesting, isn't and it? So, so if you say, I'm proud to be a Democrat, I'm proud to support President Obama's platform, uh, that is a political goldmine right now. And I think a lot of these Democrats have been shell-shocked by years of being told by the Republicans that the only ideas that were popular were Republican ideas. And yeah, now they're yeah. saying, you know, you're yeah. a center-right country. Well, it's not. It's, a, you know, it's a progressive not, country. It is not a center-right yeah. country. And I, don't, I, keep, I get nauseous every time I hear that. It's not. The numbers show that it's not. So, I look, you, you have the ears of some of these people. you got to say the same thing that I'm saying to them. Use the executive pen as, as often as you can. And, and to hell with the Democrats that won't jump on board and actually make some substantial change. Climate change legislation moving forward, say the headlines. It sure sounds like good news for Congress to require the reduction of carbon dioxide emissions that we know are major contributors to global warming, especially after years of an administration that often argued that the jury was still out on whether warming was happening at all. But a bill and this bill are two different things, and even as many media outlets celebrate, as is their want, the bipartisan support for the climate bill now wending its way through Congress. Some others are saying cross-aisle support for a crummy law does not amount to good news. Here to help us sort through what's going on is Mike Lillis. Mike follows Congress for the Washington Independent News site, joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Mike Lillis. Thanks for having me, Jenny. Apparently it was Otto von Bismarck who said laws are like sausages. It's better not to see them being made. That comes to mind watching the climate change bill in the House. I wonder if you'd explain some of what has already happened here. The initial goal of this legislation, obviously enough, was to mitigate the U.S.'s contribution to global warming by reducing carbon emissions and other things. What has happened along the way, and is the bill now altered beyond recognition? Well, you know, the partisanship on Capitol Hill is infamous at this point. But this is an especially interesting debate because half the lawmakers involved don't believe in the problem that the legislation is trying to fix to begin with. So you said that the jury is still out. That was the stand of the prior administration. Well, that's still the stand of a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill. And in the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, markup this week, we're hearing a lot of arguments from, from those folks. Going back even a week before, it was Democrats that the sponsors of this bill had to get on board. And that was an even more interesting debate, because I guess that once the Democrats had the House, they got the Senate, and they had the White House, that there was this preconceived notion that they would be able to push anything that they wanted. And then you see that concept run up into the idea of what we're calling regional protectionism. And so you had a lot of the uh, the coal country Democrats pushing for the coal industry. You had a lot of the automaker protectors pushing for the auto industry. You had a lot of the gas refinery Democrats in Texas pushing for protections for the gas industry. And what you got was a pretty watered-down version of the original draft that Henry Waxman of California and Ed Markey of Massachusetts had initially unveiled in April. Well, it's interesting because as media consumers were used to this industry versus environment angle on this story, but that's kind of abstract. And as you point out, and as you've just said, in making the law, it's really these regional versus national conflicts that wind up having the most impact. Of course, there's also money. And one of the things that you've tracked is the lobbying, and that's looking very tilted as well. Sure, the lobbying is is enormous. And in the first three months of this year, the energy industry, including all of those that I just mentioned, have certainly been active on Capitol Hill. They're pumping many millions more than uh, than the environmentalists and the renewable energy folks. 
Well, tell us maybe one concrete example from this. I know there are many, but talk to us about these pollution permits that we've been hearing about. What's that story? Sure. This was something that Senator Barack Obama had campaigned on during the course of the presidential campaign. And they call this cap and trade. And it just means that if you're going to be pumping carbon into the environment, then you're going to, in theory, pay for every ton that you contribute. And uh, the original plan under Obama's strategy was that you were going to sell uh, 100% of those. It was going to be it was the cap and trade auction. He called it. 100% were going to be for sale, and, and then these polluters could trade them or sell them uh, as they saw fit. And Obama estimated that that was going to bring in about 650 billion dollars over the next decade. The draft bill that Waxman and Markey introduced in April didn't set an auction percentage on that. They just said, we're going to take a look at it, and, and we want everybody's input, and, and we'll see what comes out of it. Well, what came out of it was instead of 100% auctions, you have 15% auctions, meaning they're giving away 85% of those polluter permits for free. And that number will go down as the years progress. But, but what it means is that the country's largest polluters don't have to pay for the, for the pollution that they're spitting out into the environment. So if you were to report that, you know, pollution permits are still a part of this legislation, you'd kind of be missing uh, the, the trajectory of what's happened. Well, we often know that for many corporate outlets, if Republicans and Democrats support something, and even better, if they compromise over it, well, then it's pretty much got to be good. Uh, and that can wind up being the perspective so that people outside of that Washington consensus sound like wackos or at best impractical. I, I wonder, as a reporter, how important do you feel it is to get non-politician voices, non-Congress member voices into a story about congressional actions. I think it's always a goal of, of reporters to get, quote-unquote, objective voices. Of course, none of these people are clearly objective. I mean, you know, if, you, if for the story that we're writing now, you know, if you want somebody to criticize the bill, you would call an environmentalist, and if you want somebody to support it, then you would call the coal industry. I mean, it's kind of a, a game, and, uh, and you can confirm your, uh, your prior beliefs by making the right phone call. Well, in a way, this story kind of points to a role for national journalists. I guess regional papers can be expected in a way to present things primarily from a local impact perspective, not that they can't have a broader awareness, too. Obviously, they could. But I wonder if you see national outlets doing a, a, a good job or what kind of job you think they're doing tracking all the pieces of this issue. Are there angles that you think are to date underexplored? Well, you know, I think that because right now there is no system in place that fights emissions, that a lot of folks came from that angle. They, they said, well, listen, we have nothing in place. And so, you know, half the loaf is better than none. And that's what you're hearing even from some environmental groups that, hey, why are we fretting over 17 percent emissions by 2020? Uh, even if it's a little bit less than what the target was a few months ago, it's better than nothing. And so we'll take it and we'll build from there. And so I think a lot of the reporting, again, started from that, just from the idea that we don't have anything in place now. This bill is better than nothing. There is another approach, and that is that if you believe that climate change is real, if you believe that man is contributing to it, and if you believe that there's an urgency and a responsibility for Congress to uh, to take steps to fix it, there are targets. The Obama plan and many scientists, he based his plan on, on some scientific reports that said that we better hit 83% um, reductions by 2050. And so the 17% by 2020 that's in the Waxman-Markey bill now is a little bit lower. They still want 83% by 2050. But if you're only hitting 17% by 2020, then the burden is on, you know, lawmakers in the future to really close a much larger gap. And so the question is, are we on that trajectory? And so in a sense, they've, they've just punted it down the road. And if you approach from that angle, then, then there is more room to criticize the bill. And I suppose it's not neutral, is the perspective of some people. It's not really neutral to pass something that's inadequate because things as they are, that might mean they don't go back to the issue for some time. Precisely. You know, there's already a lot of reports that Wall Street is really salivating over the thought of this cap-and-trade system because they can trade, they can bundle it, and, and, and do everything that they do. And it's, they're talking about hundreds of, hundreds of billions of dollars on Wall Street that's going to be made over this system. And so once it's in place, it's, you know, they will not return to it for quite a number of years, which is why a lot of environmentalists are saying, listen, let's scrap this bill, uh, either improve it or scrap it, because we need to put some stricter limitations on this stuff. We've been speaking with Mike Lillis. He's Congress reporter for the Washington Independent news site. You can find them online at WashingtonIndependent.com. 
This vacation's useless. These white pills aren't kind. I've given a lot of thought on this 13-hour drive. I miss the grind in concrete where we sat past eight or nine and slowly finished laughing in the glow of our headlights. I've given a lot of thought to the nights we used to have. The days have come and gone. Our lives went by so fast. I faintly remember breathing on your bedroom floor where I laid and told you, but you swear you love me more. Do you care if I don't know what to say? Will you sleep tonight? Will you think of me? Will I shake this off? Pretend it's all okay that there's someone out there who feels just like me. Moving on from one problem solved to another. As you know, the American auto industry has been in some difficulty of late. What with going broke and not selling any cars. Well, not to worry. The flunking out of school auto industry just got its wish. More homework. The goal is to set one national standard that will rapidly increase fuel efficiency without compromising safety by an average of 5% each year between 2012 and 2016. 2016, but that's when the robot wars will happen. <laughs> Actually, it's about time. Fuel standards are the only thing in America that's totally unchanged since 1985. Well, fuel standards and my love for Kaja Goo Goo. <laughs> You're not too shy, shy. <laughs> You're just right. <laughs> Sorry. The president's announcement gathered people of all stripes in the spirit of cooperation. Republicans, Democrats, cabinet officials, and auto industry executives triumphantly celebrating this first, albeit small, step towards American oil independence. Seems innocuous, or are we all missing something? Big new environmental regulations on your car, but do they endanger the lives of your family? Because you can't have both! You can't! What's it going to be, America? Mileage? or the lives of your family. <laughs> I mean, I love my family, but I commute. <laughs> Obviously, there are valid safety concerns for smaller cars, a point eloquently debated on MSNBC's The Ed Show. When you move cafe standards, you're going to have a lighter vehicle. If you have a lighter vehicle, if there's a crash, if there's a collision, you could have people who are in harm's way because they're in a lighter vehicle. I never get tired of that. An argument in four-part disharmony. Not to brag, but it appears to be a pundit style stolen from our Sunday morning issues show, Newshemian Rhapsody. Pretty sure Jason Jones was just shouting watermelon over and over again. All right, so safety may be a reasonable concern. Give me an unreasonable one. What if you want to drive a gas hog? You don't have the right any longer in this country to spend your money to drive a gas hog? You can have my gas hog when you pull it from my cold, numb ass cheeks. his opponents can turn this argument simplistic. The real question is, can Obama turn a simple gas mileage argument into the Gettysburg Address? No longer will we accept the notion that our politics are too small, our nation too divided, our people too weary of broken promises and lost opportunities to take up a historic calling. No longer will we accept anything less than a common effort made in good faith to solve our toughest problems. And there were no gas stations there. <laughs> we shall drive on the highways, we shall drive on freeways, we shall four-wheel in the hills and on the sidewalks and on the playgrounds. Never walk, never, never walk, never, never, never walk. We shall drive, always drive, but with better mileage. Dude, dude, 
float on mileage, baby. Save it for when the Chinese invade. To find someone you love, you gotta be someone you love. To find someone you love, you gotta be someone you love. Satellite images show that icebergs have begun to calve from the northern front of the Wilkins Ice Shelf, indicating that the huge shelf has become unstable. This follows the collapse several weeks ago of the ice bridge that had previously linked the Antarctic mainland to an island. The ice bridge, which effectively formed a barrier, pinning back the northern ice front of the central ice shelf, collapsed early April. As a consequence, the rifts, which had already featured along the northern ice front, widened and new cracks formed as the ice adjusted in the days that followed. Late April, the satellite data showed that the first icebergs had started to break away from the fragile ice shelf. A very rough estimate says about 700 square kilometers of ice had been lost from the ice shelf. It's expected this charge of ice will continue for some weeks. The icebergs are calving as a result of fracture zones, zones that have formed over the last 15 years and which turned Wilkins into a fragile and vulnerable ice shelf. The retreat of the Wilkins ice shelf is the latest and the largest of its kind. Eight separate ice shelves along the Antarctic Peninsula have shown signs of retreat over the past few decades. There is little doubt, says David Vaughn from the British Antarctic Survey, that these changes are a result of atmospheric warming on the Antarctic Peninsula, which has been the most rapid in the southern hemisphere. It's still unclear how the situation will evolve. Well, it's unclear how everything will evolve. That's why it's evolution. From Science Daily, biofuels such as ethanol offer an alternative to petroleum for powering our cars. But growing energy crops to produce the biofuels can compete with food crops for farmland. Hey, we wanted to eat that corn. No, you didn't. And clearing forests to expand farmland will aggravate the climate change problem, you see. How can we maximize our miles per acre from biomass? Researchers writing in the online edition of the journal Science say the best bet is to convert the biomass into electricity rather than ethanol. Clearly, this research was not funded by Archer Daniels Midland. They calculate that compared to ethanol used for car engines, bioelectricity used for battery-powered vehicles would deliver an average of 80% 80% more miles of transportation per acre of crops, while providing double the greenhouse gas offsets to mitigate climate change. It's a relatively obvious question once you ask it, but nobody had really asked it before, says study co-author Chris Field of Carnegie Institution. The kinds of motivations that have driven people to think about developing ethanol as a vehicle fuel have been somewhat different. Here's delicacy of phrasing. From those that have been motivating people to think about battery electric vehicles, but the overlap is in the area of maximizing efficiency and minimizing adverse effects on climate. The researchers performed a life cycle analysis of both bioelectricity and ethanol technology, taking into account not only the energy produced by each technology, but also the energy consumed in producing the vehicles and fuels. Bioelectricity was the clear winner in the transportation miles per acre comparison, rather, regardless of whether the energy was produced from corn or from switchgrass. Wasn't that George Bush's favorite uh, biomass for ethanol product? Switchgrass. we got to switch to switchgrass. The internal combustion engine just isn't very efficient, especially when compared with electric vehicles, says one of the authors. Even the best ethanol-producing technologies with hybrid vehicles aren't enough to overcome this. The researchers also found that bioelectricity and ethanol differed in their potential impact on climate change. Some approaches to bioenergy can make climate change worse. Other limited approaches can help fight climate change. For these beneficial approaches, we could do more to fight climate change by making electricity rather than by making ethanol. 
The energy from an acre of switchgrass used to power an electric vehicle would prevent or offset the release of up to 10 tons of CO2 per acre relative to a similar-sized gasoline-powered car. This offset averages more than 100% for the bioelectricity than for the ethanol. The researchers, though, caution that the issues facing society in choosing an energy strategy are complex because they might want some funding from March and Moon, I guess. But we also need to compare these options for other issues like water consumption, air pollution, and economic costs. Congressman, saying there is no global warming or climate change because, quote, CO2, carbon dioxide, is not a pollutant in any normal definition of the term. I am creating it as I talk to you. It's in your Coca-Cola, your Dr. Pepper, your Perrier water. It is necessary for human life. It is odorless, colorless, tasteless, does not cause cancer, does not cause asthma. And something that the Democrat sponsors do not point out, a lot of the CO2 that is created in the United States is naturally created. You can't regulate God. Not even the Democratic majority in the U.S. Congress can regulate God. It's naturally created, so you can't regulate it. Like cocaine, or anthrax, or stupid congressmen. A dream I never know anyone at the party, and I'm always the host. If dreams are like movies, then memories are films about ghosts. You can never One of the stories we need to pay attention to, another great thing about Barack Obama, is he said that he's going to close the Yucca Mountain nuclear waste dump. Mm -hmm. As you know, I've always said I'm for nuclear energy as long as we can make it safe and as long as we can make it economical. Mm -hmm. Today, it's the it is neither. It is the most expensive way, catastrophically expensive way of boiling a pot of water that has ever been devised. And there's no way that it could function in the marketplace without externalizing its costs. And one of the ways that it's devised to do that is to have the public, you and I, pay for the disposal of its waste. We have to store this stuff in Yucca Mountain. This was their plan for the next 30,000 years, which is five times the length of recorded human history. Furthermore, anybody who tells you it's safe, Mike, what you need to say to them is, well, why can't they get insurance? You know, they had to get the Price-Anderson Act passed because the insurance industry wouldn't insure them. Mm -hmm. And so they went through a sleazy legislative maneuver in the middle of the night. They got the, they forced through this Price-Anderson Act, which shifts the cost of insuring nuclear power plants 
to the homeowners of America. So every homeowner in America has a provision in his homeowner's insurance policy that says that this policy does not insure you against contamination by radiation from a nuclear power plant. So you and I and every homeowner in the country is now bearing the risk that this industry is imposing on oh, us. Oh, no but, other, but, no, but, other no, but, but can't, we can trust industry. I look at this last EPA data on coal ash risks, and the study showed that a person that lives in the vicinity of one of these coal ash dumps, one in 50 chances of getting cancer. Now, the reason we're just learning that is because George Bush kept that secret for five years, would not I, release the data. This was a 2002 study that was done by EPA that demonstrated that coal ash from these from mountaintop mining and from other coal mining operations, these huge piles of ash that, you know, last year they got some publicity because a bunch of this stuff was washed into the Tennessee River. Right. But it is so toxic. It's one of the most carcinogenic materials ever tested. One in 50 people exposed to it could end up with cancer. And actually, they're saying that the risk may be much greater. And there's not just cancer risks. It shuts down your kidneys. It shut down, shuts down your liver. Neurological. It, de it destroys aquatic ecosystems. The levels in the typical rivers below these dumps are 2,000 times the safe level for selenium and 10 times the levels that are regarded safe for and George, uh, the survival of aquatic life. And, George and the Bush, Bush administration yeah. deliberately took this scientific report and hid it from the American public who paid for that report and hid it from us for his entire presidency. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, my guess would be that at about the time this show is released, I will be snug in my bed, fast asleep, having wonderful dreams of my brilliant foresight to pre-produce these past few episodes, especially including this one, giving myself the ability to come home from my vacation and not have to jump right back in and produce a new show as soon as I got there. I assume I had a great time on the trip. There were probably lots of fun adventures that happened. Amazing memories were created that'll last a lifetime. And of course, untold pictures were taken to meticulously catalog every amazing moment. Of course, now the other result from this trip is that in all likelihood, I am now in possession of a new car that I don't particularly want myself and would love to get rid of. As I mentioned in the last show, and I actually have a correction to make on that, the car I have available is a 2002 Lexus IS300, not a 2001 as I claimed before. It is the sporty style of Lexus, and this one comes complete with a stick shift, which makes it very rare and exciting for anyone who uh, really wants to have fun in a car. So now, of course, as I'm trying to get rid of this car as quickly as possible, it would be ridiculous for me to not be mentioning it on the show in case any fine listeners would like to take possession of it. Now, about a week and a half has gone by since I was last able to check how many new members The Best of the Left has, um, so I, I, can't, I can't say for sure how many we have, but my guess is that we didn't get about 250 brand new members uh, paying $5 a month in, in, you know, just in the last week and a half or so. My, you know, maybe we did, but um, I doubt it. If we have, though... I will now be able to say that I feel confident that we will be able to continue producing this show regularly two times a week, twice as many as we used to, and that's all because of you guys. Now that, you know, of course at this point in time is not the reality, but it could be, and that's all up to you guys. Every member that signs up paying as little as $5 a month to get these eight hours of wonderful infotainment or a... Uh, Intermation is another term I've heard, brings us that much closer to being able to do this consistently in perpetuity. So as I have said, and as you will hear me continue to say, if you like the show and you appreciate what we do, and appreciate the fact that you're getting it eight times a month now instead of just four, 
please consider signing up for our membership and know that you are helping to keep this show going in the most literal sense there is. So that's it for today. Be sure to stay connected with us on Twitter and Facebook, as well as by subscribing to our newsletter. Get the show directly on your smartphone without syncing at Stitcher.com, and visit our show notes on the blog to find the links to all of our sources and music used in this episode. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every weekend and every Wednesday from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, smell black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fun friend